Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Steve Prater is an entrepreneur, investment banker, and business coach helping good companies become great and viable. I am so excited to have Steve on the Deal Quest podcast. Steve, welcome. Hey, Corey, nice to be here. Well, listen, you know, viable, that's a great word, right, on the Deals podcast. And before we, we get more into exactly how you do that and what you're doing now, I want to take you back to when you were growing up as a little kid, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is uh, investment banking and business coach and making the businesses viable probably wasn't it back then, but you tell me. That's a great question. So I actually do have a very distinct memory when I was, when I was 10 years old. And I remember I've, I was, it was the summer, you know, I was a little boy and my grandparents, I was in my grandparents' vacation home. And I remember one evening I was walking around the house and I was kind of singing a song, We Shall Overcome. I was singing that. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, what I would like to be. And uh, uh, there were two, two thoughts I had. Uh, it wasn't crystallized, but one was that I had uh, heard stories of my great-grandfather, who was a very successful entrepreneur in pre-war Budapest. He had the chain of bakeries. He was one of the top 30 taxpayers in, in Budapest. So I was really mesmerized by these stories about his rags to riches uh, success. And the second thing I knew was that I wanted to be on the move. So I visualized myself as being traveling. And uh, of course, that was a big thing because I was behind the Iron Curtain. So everyone wanted to travel. But I, I saw myself as doing some kind of an international work where I would be traveling from place to places and meet a lot of people. And uh, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. But, uh, but that was kind of my, my thing uh, from my childhood. I love it. I love it. Great story. Uh, one other question looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been something when you were a little kid or early in your career, whatever comes to mind that you know was an early deal. Well, I mean, it's a very small one, but I was still in, in elementary school. And uh, I remember that there was this little candy bars called Pez uh, candy bars, yeah. and they became really popular, but they were not available only in a couple of shops around town. And I figured out where they were uh, for sale. And I, every morning I went there and I bought a bunch of them. And then I sold it with a high markup in my class. And that. Uh, that was my kind of first deal that I did. And was very lucrative for a few weeks until other people caught on. I love it. A little, a little resale deal there uh, until, yeah, until the market caught up with you, huh? <laughs> Great. Okay. So let's, let, let's talk, let's jump to what you're doing now. And, um, you know, you say investment banker, people, you know, generally understand what that is. You say business coach, and then, you know, uh, having companies become good to great and viable. So, but give us a little more detail exactly, you know, who are the kind of companies you work with? What do you exactly do to help them be, go from good to great and become viable? 
So the last 10 years, I've been working almost exclusively with medium-sized, small to medium-sized businesses. So typically 10 to 250 employee businesses. Yep. And uh, I ran an investment banking business between 2002 and, and 2012 in Hungary and, and in Romania. We also had an office. And basically, uh, we were helping small business owners to position their, their businesses for sale. And then we helped with the transaction. We found the investor and helped the transaction. And I really loved that, that work. Uh, what I really loved is the impact we were making with these sure. companies. We were helping these, these people to actually realize something for their, their hard work. I really loved that. I loved the deal making and the negotiation and the excitement of of the deal and uh, obviously a lot of disappointments as well, but a lot of yeah. exciting success. So, so that was kind of the first 10 years of last 20. And then we moved over here uh, to the US and I started uh, doing limited investment banking, but then I transitioned to coaching. The reason I transitioned was primarily uh, because my wife said that it's enough about the deal making, it's too risky. I want uh, a stable paycheck, you'll bring me money every month. So I started dabbling in, in uh, coaching. And then I actually realized that I really enjoyed coaching. And what I liked about it was that it was much more rewarding on a day-to-day -day basis. So with the deal making, when we hit the jackpot, it was very rewarding, both financially as well as for the client. But there was also a lot of tension with the client, with obviously with the buyers, and sometimes the clients got greedy. And even if we did a good job, they were not uh, happy. And sometimes, you know, they changed their minds. It was a very stressful job. With coaching, what I really loved was that I can help the company get better. And it's always a rewarding experience, unless they don't execute, in which case we fire each other and that's fine. Sure. Um, now, one more thing I'd like to share here. So one of the things that I also realized when I became a business coach was that I inadvertently let down some of my clients because sometimes we sold their businesses too early. If I had known what I know now, I could have helped them increase the value of the business and we could have gotten a much better payout for them, but I didn't know it. And, and I was in the business of selling businesses. So I, I basically just pushed them and, and I feel like I could have done a better job for them if, if I helped them grow the business a little bit more before they sold. Yeah. In hindsight, that's a great, you know, it's a great observation. And, you know, what's interesting to me, obviously, listen, uh, Steve, there are a huge number of business coaches out there, right? And they come from different angles. And I've, I've used business coaches, right? I believe in business coaches. However, uh, you know, everybody, anybody can say this, but they're a business coach, right? This is no, yes, there are certifications out there, whatever, but everybody, you know, and they bring different things and I'm not, I'm not denigrating anybody, but what I like in the context of, of at least this podcast is that a lot of coaches I know, yeah, they'll work on, um, you know, the individual executives and maybe some of their own limiting beliefs and breakthroughs, which I've, I've had great help with coaches with. A lot of them come from the sales side of things, you know, to help, you know, sales and marketing promotion, which is also very valuable. But a lot fewer them, of them come from a background that understand deals, that understand M&A and understand actually being having that other way to build value. Obviously, the more customers and clients you have, the more revenue you get, that builds value as well. But there are additional ways to build value. So uh, I'd love you to talk about how that background, you know, in investment banking and your understanding of deals applies and helps you in terms of how you, you coach your clients. So basically, I, I am still wearing my investment banker hat a little bit in this coaching relationship. So as you said, there are different coaches. They come in all different shapes and sizes. Uh, there are executive coaches who focus on working with executives. There are leadership team coaches who work with groups of people. And there are entrepreneur coaches. 
There are life coaches, obviously. And then there are coaches who focus on culture primarily, and there are coaches who focus on numbers. And so I come from, uh, you know, started life at KPMG as an accountant, and then I went to banking and went to investment banking. So I, I kind of started from the numbers side and gradually moved over to the human side, to the people side. Uh, 20 years ago, I was really excited about financial models. Uh, today, I'm no longer excited about financial <laughs> models, but I'm really excited about people being uh, driven by a powerful purpose and figuring out where they want to take this company, how they energize the people around them, and how they create a good execution framework. Um, I'm very excited about. And I'm also thinking about how to make this company viable in the process. So that's why uh, my book is titled Viable. And the subtitle is How to uh, Create a Self-Managing, fast-growing and high-profit business. So th this is kind of what, what I'm focusing on. Make the business self-managing yep. so that you don't have to do the heavy lifting as the entrepreneur. You can stay at the strategic level. You've got a team that executes. Um, you've got a vision that is beyond your life cycle. So the company has its own story that it is pursuing. And then you obviously you want it to grow because if you don't grow the business, you're not attracting the right people. Because the good people, they want to be, uh, build a great career. They want to grow themselves fast. And that only happens if the business is growing. Uh, and ultimately, you want to be high profit. So you want to be at the elite level in your industry, the, the top 15% of your industry that makes 90% of the profits of the whole industry. You want to be there. So you want to figure out how you go. What is that level of profitability? You have to engineer your business and then sustain that level of profitability. So so that's what uh, I, I focus on. And, you know, that's my brand of coaching, but obviously it's not the only one and it's not necessarily the best one. I love it because, you know, so I've been involved with entrepreneurs organization for, you know, 13 years, whatever. I was president of New York chapter and uh, for a couple of years, but, you know, back in the mid uh, teens and, you know, in that community and the entrepreneurial community in general, you know, Michael Gerber's e-myth is, is, is like a Bible, right? And, and that's, you know, and, and it's similar to some of the things you're talking about. You know, um, Gerber hates when you reduce his book down to work on your business, not in your business, but that is one of the principles. And, you know, it, it is the holy grail for a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs to say, you know, that first of all, just for their own lifestyle and whatever, not to have to work day and night, but also they understand in building enterprise value, right, that the less dependent the business is on them, the more valuable it is and the less, uh, you know, most entrepreneurs don't want to get locked into a five-year employment agreement after they sell. And, you know, you, you, you can only avoid that if you are not as crucial to the business at the time you sell, right? So let's talk about some of the ways you work with folks. Like what, what are the things that companies have to do to become viable? And correspondingly, what are some of the mistakes that people make that, that have them be less attractive? What I also... Um... I'm very excited, got very excited. And the reason I, I chose the, the brand of coaching I'm doing is because I, I read the emails back in the mid-2000s and I implemented yeah. it in my business and it really helped us grow. And then I read Traction and I implemented yeah. Traction and that took us to the next level. And I call both the emails and Traction, I call them, you know, call them business operating systems or I call them management blueprints. So they are basically a framework that helps you simplify things. So as a small company, you can't afford Harvard MBAs doing management and strategy for you, right? You yeah. have to have a cookie cutter way of doing this on the cheap, essentially doing it yourself or with a facilitator, with a coach like me in a, in a much more affordable and simplified way. So I'm, I'm really obsessed by this idea. There are 1.7 million 
of these uh, small businesses, 10 to 250 employee businesses in the US, and 85% of them go out of business in 10 years. Mm-hmm. So essentially, we are losing a lot of businesses. And the reason these businesses are lost because they don't know how to organize themselves. They don't know how to set goals, how to build a team, how to execute. And if they had a coach who would help them with them, they would all survive. And I, I, I did a back of the envelope calculation. It would actually add uh, to bump up our GDP in the US by 20%. And it would add to the annual growth rate by another 4% per annum. So we would be running uh, circles around China in terms of growth. So this is a huge opportunity. So what, what I do is I, I use these uh, management blueprints. And this is my podcast is also called Management Blueprint. So the EMIS traction, EOS. Uh, scaling up, four disciplines of execution, five game of gear business. And, and there are many more. So we are just recording the 90th episode and there's no repeat, but there's so many frameworks out there. So what I do is I work with businesses and I put together for them a customized framework to grow their business. It's their own operating system. And the framework I use, kind of the overarching framework is called Pinnacle. So how do you take the company to the Pinnacle and there are five pinnacle principles that you work around. And the first one is people. So, you know, right people in the right seats. And how do you coach your A potentials to become A players? Yeah. How do you keep your A players by giving them uh, more uh, opportunities? Then the second principle is purpose. So it's all about vision, strategy, and alignment. Yeah. So where are you going? How are you going to get there? And make sure that everyone is rowing the same direction in the organization. The third principle is called performance. Uh, so performance is all about setting goals, setting quarterly rocks, uh, having metrics for everyone, having a meeting cadence so that everyone is executing the vision and the plan. Yep. The fourth pinnacle principle is playbooks. So we are uh, documenting, we are defining and ingraining our processes, our unique way of doing business, and we are constantly optimizing it so that you, we are uh, refining our playbooks. And the fifth principle, so if you do the first four principles, so you, you got the, the right people, people, uh, purpose, performance, and playbooks, if you do this right, you already are a fairly profitable organization. But then the fifth one is profit. So we benchmark ourselves. What are the elite payers doing? And how do we engineer the business? And how do we sustain with uh, a set of strategies? How do we sustain are top of the university profitability. So that's the journey I'm taking my clients on and love it. And I'm very pumped about it. Well, okay. So now, and you know, you've mentioned so many things that, that, that in the entrepreneurial community traction, you know, all these, right. The EOS, right. Scaling up. I mean, these are all again around the EO and other entrepreneurial community. Uh, everybody, you know, uh, wants to implement these things. And, you know, you see some folks who really do. Right. And then others who, who don't, they read the books, they, they, they try it, they, whatever. You know, there's also a, there's several books. I think Godin had a book called The Dip. Uh, I'm a fan of, um, there's another book that talks about the different stages of, of growth. Uh, come to me in a second. And, um, you know, and, and very often, and most people believe, I believe that, you know, you get to a point, well, so first of all, you get to a point where, you know, the way you did it now won't get you, you know, what got you here won't get you there, right? And then you also often get to a point where you actually have to reinvest in the company in a way that may temporarily 
right? Have you make less profit, right? Because you're in that, you're hiring key people, you're putting systems in place, whatever. And you, you know, you go into this trough or this dip. That, the, the no man's land. And then yes. you can go to the next. So, um, so uh, you know, talk to me about, uh, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in, because we talk about the execution and the, but what is it about the entrepreneur? Because I always, I often talk about the mindset of a deal maker, right? Or the mindset of an entrepreneur, because we all know in these smaller, medium-sized companies, you know, it's very often the founder or founders that are going to govern whether this thing really, you know, follows your advice and goes to the next level or, or, or doesn't. So what's the difference in whether it's mindset or whatever it is be, between the ones that, that, that do get past that dip and go to that next level and the ones that never get there? Well, it is a mindset. Um, so uh, really, it's, it's, it's about the growth mindset. Yeah. So what are you in? And, and that's when it comes back to why are you in business in the first place? Yeah. So did you just buy yourself a job? I mean, often franchisees, this is what they do. You know, they buy themselves a job. They got fired in corporate America. They got bruised and say, okay, I'm going to buy myself a job where I cannot be fired. Yeah. And that's, that's a franchise opportunity. And that becomes a lifestyle business. Yep. Um, so are you in the business of just having a lifestyle business, which is completely fine? There's not, nothing wrong with this. Uh, but are you just basically just want to have a stable thing where you've got a stable income, you, you, you have a good skill that you can sell, um, and you can have a decent lifestyle, you're not killing yourself growing? Or do you want to grow a business? And if you want to grow the business, why do you want to grow the business? Is this because it's self-actualization for you to actually build a business? You're excited about getting out of bed every day to how to grow this business and, and surpass competitors or solve a big problem? Or is it because you want an exit because you are chasing a lifestyle where, for which you need a lot of money? And, and again, both are fine, but figure out what you want to do. And if you want to grow then you have to recognize that when a company grows, it only grows to the extent that the leadership team is able to grow. Yes. So if you want to take this company from 10 million to 50 million, guess what? I always tell my clients, you guys have to become five times more effective. So those of you who can do that, they are going to go with that company. If you can't do that, then you're going to have to move sideways. You won't be able to take this company. So so that's the first idea. So if if uh, so, the right mindset is, I am a person that I want to grow and willing to grow to the extent I want the company to grow. I know why I'm doing this. I have real clear objectives. So I'm I'm willing to pay the price of growth, which can there can be growing pains as we all know. Mm -hmm. um, so I I've, I have a, a strong motivation. I'm not there in the company because I want people around me to to surround me people and you know that uh, eat from my hand and and think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's not what I'm pursuing. I want to grow this business. And if I want to grow this business, then I recognize that I have to grow myself, which means I have to get out of the way. I have to elevate myself and do the stuff that I'm really good at and which helps grow. And empower the people who will run the, the execution, the day-to-day -day of the business. Yeah. So that's kind of mindset. And uh, I'm always mining for this when I'm, I'm talking about the potential clients. I, I you know, try to figure out because if they don't have it, then it's going to be a disappointing experience for both of us. And I don't want that. I mean, I want, I want to walk out of this meeting every time energized and inspired myself because then I can take this to all my other clients. If someone drains my energy because they are not executing, that's bad for them. That's bad for me too. Yeah. So it's kind of a long-winded answer, but 
No, 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 no. no. It's, I, I think it's I think it's right on. Uh, and that, the other resource that I was running a blank on for a moment was Les McEwen's book, Predictable Success which I'm a fan of, uh, you know, he talks about the stages of a business where in the beginning you have the struggle just to build it. And then it gets to a point where it's fun, right? Maybe you've got yourself as the visionary, you got, you got an operator, right? Usually a visionary needs an operator. He talks about, right. Somebody, yep. you know, who actually helps execute for the visionary. And, you know, you have this nice maybe lifestyle business and it becomes fun. You, you're not worried about, it. you can pay the, you can eat, you can pay the bills. And then though, either you, are going to stay in that phase, which is actually hard to do because of different marketing issues. Or if you continue to grow, he, you're going to hit a stage that he calls whitewater <laughs> before you get to predictable success, before you get the systems in place and the right team in place and the people in the seats of the bus. You know, you go through this whitewater period where everything you've done doesn't work and you got to upgrade maybe some of your people and your systems and things are breaking down because the growth has exceeded your, your systems. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Les's work in that way because I've seen it. And, and listen, you know, I know you also said something that was interesting, like all these op- basic operating systems, uh, whether it's, you know, traction or, you know, scaling up or whatever. Or, I mean, I had a personal experience recently. We, we were, I was a big fan. I've had Mike McCallowitz on the podcast a couple of times and, and he has um, Profit First, right? And Profit First also became a Bible for me on the way I, you know, I do my fundamental money and put money aside for taxes and owners yeah. pay and owners, you know. And but recently, I've um, hired a, a CFO service, right? Full like the real CFO service beyond you know what I used to have in the accounting, whatever. Who's giving me a much more sophisticated, right? So, so we're we looking at profit first, not that profit. profit I'm a fan. You should read profit first, listeners, if you haven't done it and you don't apply in your sure, business. Have, it's yeah. a phenomenal book, but. I like the way you said you have these operating systems because, you know, it, it's sort of a simplified way because you don't have the kind of advice and consultants and high level people and whatever. And I've seen now when I've stepped up that I'm getting, you know, very sophisticated analyses and we're going to like redo, you know, how, how we approach profit first because I have a much higher level capability. And that's what's, again, continued to you know, at me to grow, but you know, that's an investment, right? I just made an investment in another senior attorney. I mean, we're adding hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, right, in expenses. And not everybody's willing to take that risk and make that jump, right? Because, you know, you often have to invest in advance. Like just the way most businesses work, it's very rare that you you get the full revenue first before you make the investments that, that's going to bring it. You got you to take a leap of faith at some point. Um, so, you know, I, lo- I love this conversation and what you help people do. I, I totally agree. And profit first is a great idea. It's basically what our grandparents used to do. They would put money in different cookie jars, you know, to make sure that there's money left over for vacations and for the new car and yeah. and for the the teaching my, of the kids. My parents did that when I was growing up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So it's basically the same thing right now with bank accounts. It's the same same idea, but but that's definitely a big blind spot for entrepreneurs. And we like to say it this way, uh, Mike Michaelovitz actually says this way, that you know, the traditional accounting is revenue minus expenses is profit. So that's gap accounting. And then you have profit first is revenue minus profit equals expenses. Right. But I would also right. add that uh, entrepreneurs don't really follow that. It's, it's a hard one to follow. Entrepreneurs, basically, they follow their passion often. So yep. they, they, you know, they, they want to get something accomplished and then they put themselves in a position where basically it's a gun to the head and I have to do it and they figure it out how they do it. So they don't right. do it by putting the money aside. They don't put the money aside. They invest the money and then they just drive themselves 
crazy. It's like Elon Musk sleeping under his desk. He's right. a billionaire, but he's willing to sleep under this desk weeks on end to make sure that the operation is figured out and the Teslas manufacture 5,000 a week. And then he did that with SpaceX. I heard an interview recently that he was looking for a chief engineer and they couldn't find a chief engineer who was good enough. And he turned himself into the chief engineer and he figured out how to get this rocket not explode. So this is, this is insane. This is what entrepreneurs do. They basically put themselves in a position where they can't afford to fail and they somehow make it. Listen, and, and listen, I've been, I've been there myself. I mean, I could, you know, I won't get into my stories early on about, you know, going into paying my rent off credit card debts when I, you know, paying my rent off credit cards and being in debt when I started my business. And then, you know, and I've been there, you know, more than once, but, you know, you get, but when you get to the point where you're trying to create a viable business, where you're trying to create something that's viable, you got to, you know, you got to get to the point where you break some, I mean, you still want that, you still want that commitment and passion. You still want that vision, but you got to break some of those habits, right? To be able to create a viable business. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, because one of the things obviously preparing to be viable, right? You know, scalable and saleable is often the way you hear it is one thing, um, you know, in terms of just doing that organically and uh, creating the systems and teams uh, to be able to be attractive for that ultimate deal, that ultimate exit. Um, but another way to, to grow or and another way to grow for businesses is actually to do deals in the interim, right? Buy other companies, do strategic yeah, alliances, yeah. joint ventures, distribution agreements, whatever it is. And my, one of the fundamental premises of my podcast is that that's so underutilized for a lot of business, a lot of businesses bang their heads against the wall, just trying to get more sales, more customers. And yes, you need to, you need to get a heavily granite growth. You need to know how to get a customer, another one, another one. But very often there's some deal that could be done that could accelerate that growth. And if you look at the highest growth companies, you know, there's all kinds of studies and whatever, none of them have done it all organically. You know, they, they also do it through deals. So do, do you get involved in that with your clients in terms of, because you understand deals and looking, you know, and helping them in terms of deal opportunities for growth while they still own the business? Yes, I, I do get involved. So sometimes, but not as a principal uh, sure. dealmaker, I get involved as their trusted advisor. Yeah. So when, for example, I have a client right now, which is going through a merger process. You know, they, they have, uh, you know, there's a, this buyer who approached them and, you know, they are negotiating a sale. And I'm just helping them out and giving him some pointers, make sure that he keeps his eye on growing the business through the transaction because it's so easy to get distracted. Um, it's very sexy to deal with an M&A deal, especially on the sales side. It's, uh, you know, you suddenly start to see the dollar signs and, and you get uh, distracted and you, you, you know, drop the ball. Yep. So just focus on the business. But on the buy side, I mean, I do agree that especially if you're in a mature industry and if you can roll up, some other competitors, you have a good system where you can just plug people in. That's a fantastic leverage. And uh, this is a great way to get great people in the company. It's also a great way to get products, get markets. And if you can do that, it, but it's a skill in itself. So I think yes. the trick is that you have to really educate yourself 
what does it take to do good deals? And then free yourself up. So first, you have to make sure that you have a great team that runs your day-to-day business. So you can focus your energy on finding those M&A opportunities and, and being engaged and put the value in there. So if you make the business self-managing, then you can start going after these M&A opportunities and, and definitely they will increase your, your valuation because it's a bigger company, uh, you have higher multiples. And then if you have an acquisition engine, then that gets factored into your growth and your growth is going to be, you know, you grow 15% organically and then you grow another 20% acquisition. Then you, in the ultimate sale, you will be a 35% growth company and sold as one. So that's a huge uh, value add uh, as well. Yeah, no, no question. And you, you said something quickly that I want to highlight just because the way the market is right now. You know, you said you're listing off sort of the various reasons why you might, you know, do do an acquisition. And one of the things you said was talent, you know, and it's mm-hmm. and it's interesting. You know, I just want to highlight that a little bit because a lot of people think of acquisitions to be able to get, you know, just just additional clients and scale and or get into a geography. But, it's, you know, but but talent acquisition is is huge. And especially in this market where, it, you know, I know many of my clients, uh, I'm guessing many of your clients are having trouble, you know, uh, finding talent that they, that they need, you know, uh, it's one thing, sure, you can do recruiting, but if you can, if you can buy a company to, you know, I mean, I've seen deals that have done main, the main driver is getting the people. And and you cannot hire an entrepreneur. They are not for hire, but you can buy them and they're going to be running your, the, the business maybe inside your umbrella. And, and if you can, infect them with your growth and what you're doing and you give them a bigger uh, opportunity and you can give them equity, then you have a good chance of tying them in and be, make them part of your entrepreneurial uh, machine. And that's, that's a huge coup if you can pull that off. That's right. And then they may have a great team working for them. You know, they, they may, you know, you may be great at developing business, but you can't get the talent to do it. That, that person may have a great team, but maybe, you know, maybe it's not growing as quickly. So, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely opportunities there. So let's go back to your investment banking days for, for a moment and, and give me a couple of the, uh, you know, because I'm sure this impacts what you're doing now as well in terms of when people see these opportunities. Give me just a couple of the highlights and lowlights of, of, you know, the mistakes people have made, like, you know, how people got good deals done, but also, you know, what the classic mistakes that maybe people made and, and either not getting the deal done or actually getting the deal done and having to be a bad deal. Yeah, so I like to mention two examples. So one is about uh, getting a great deal done and mm-hmm. getting a great deal done by getting prepared to have mm-hmm. a great deal done. And, and, and I'd like to talk about two clients that I had. One was an entrepreneur who was 70 years old and he realized that he had a medical diagnosis, he had to have an operation mm-hmm. and he approached uh, us and uh, basically told us that we had nine months to sell his company. Uh, that's how much he can delay the operation. And he, was, he wants to make sure none of his family members are involved. He didn't really have a management team that he could sell to. So he wanted to make sure that his adverse affairs were in order. Should anything go wrong or should not be able to go back? And the company on the face of it was a great little gem. It was, it was a relatively small company, about 5 million sales, but half of it fell to the bottom line. Yep. Very profitable. It was also a dominant in its niche. It was a 60% market share in its niche. So I said, wow, this is great. However, what we found out that there were some issues in the company. One was it has a huge customer concentration issue. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So 80% of its revenue came from a single customer. It's a huge problem. The second was it had no uh, second level management team. So basically the owner was making all the decisions. So there's no one that we could promote from the inside. And the books were not completely transparent. So what we figured out very early was that we could not get any institutional investors involved sure. because these would be red flags for them. So we had to find a buy-in investor. And basically, we found one who was a retired CEO of a, of a public company who was kind of itching to get back in the game, but they didn't, the guy didn't have money. So we found an investor who was, who was a company which was in the adult entertainment industry, but they wanted to kind of whitewash their reputation. They wanted to be in, in legit businesses as well. So they, they can, kind of were, were willing to invest without a very deep due diligence. So they, yeah. they gave the money. And we, we managed to close the deal in time, but the multiple was much lower. So the multiple was four times profit as opposed to six times, which it could have been. The other example, around the same time, we did this other deal, which was, uh, it was a, a, a consumer a retail wholesale company, and they had everything buttoned down. So they were running on SAP. They had a second level leadership team in part. They had a clear vision. Uh, the two of the founders had a clear idea of what they wanted to do after the acquisition uh, and they were clearly motivated. And basically it was a very smooth process. We had a a bidding war for the company. We sold it for seven times multiple and they could hand over the keys and were out the next day and minimal indemnities. It's a great deal. And the difference was the preparation. Sure. So one uh, realized about twice the value because they were well-prepared. And number one, could have realized a similar valuation if they put in the effort maybe 18, 24 months before getting prepared. So that's one of the stories. The other story I'd like to share is I had these um, two partners. They were running a construction business. And um, one uh, one was an industry insider person. The other was a politician. And they teamed up. They did this roll up of civil engineering firms and they built this company with a couple million, I think they had four or five million uh, of EBITDA. And they said, wow, the market is super hot. It was around 2007. And let's, let's go and sell this and make a bunch of money. So they hired me and uh, we went out and we very quickly, we found uh, buyers uh, that were willing to pay a good, good multiple. And they signed an LOI. And then uh, we thought we are, you know, in the final stretch, we went into due diligence and things started slowing down. It turned out that um, they were dragging their feet. The sellers were dragging their feet. So I went to them, guys, what's going on? And said, well, you know, we, we got new contracts and it looks like next year is going to be a, a bumper year and we feel we, we're not going to sell it. It's too cheap. I said, okay, leave it with me. So I went to the buyer. I explained the situation. I told them, hey, we need to improve the terms. So there won't be a deal. So they said, okay. Uh, so they were a French company. We, were, we flew to Paris. They wined and dined us for, for two days. But nevertheless, they managed to get them to increase the price by about 20%. So we were super excited. Went in, due diligence finished. Went to negotiations. Again, things started slowing down. And I went to the couple of weeks in, I went to the sales, well, guys, what, what's going on? Uh, I says, well, you know, we, we just acquired this other company and, and the, our backlog is still growing and, and we think we, we are still, still too, too cheap. I said, okay. 
So I went again uh, to the to the buyers, and and it was much harder this time. But somehow they they still agreed to bump up the price by the ten percent. So negotiations were winding down, and we were close to uh, Christmas now, um, late uh, November, early December, and um, two thousand seven. It was 2007, and right, I, they I, agreed. I'm listening to your story like there's a train coming right at me. I, I can see it. Again. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so everything looked great, and they said they agreed to come to Budapest to do the closing and everything. And uh, the agreement was that they would fly in in the afternoon. We would agree the final terms, and next day we would sign the contracts, and then the closing would happen just right after the new year. Yeah. So that was a, a Friday. So they are, uh, so the client arrived around midday, and they told me that they decided not to sell the business. What? Well, you know, we think it's still there's so many opportunities uh, next year, and 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 you know, unless they they are willing to raise the price again, we're not going to sell it. So the buyers arrive a little bit later, and I break the news, and they are totally upset and despondent, and they turning around, they're going to take the next flight out. There were no more flights out this evening. So they were kind of stuck there. Uh, it actually was Thursday, not Friday. It was Thursday. There was no more flights. So, so I, I, I convinced them to go out for, for a drink. So we did that. Then we went for dinner. Then we went for more drinks. Then to a nightclub. Eventually, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I managed to get them to agree to a, a final deal on a piece of napkin. And I felt so powerful. It was like, because the uh, the Michael Lewis investment bankers, uh, uh, what's the title of the book? I can't remember. Uh, Michael Lewis. Liar's Poker, he wrote. Liar's Poker, Liar's yeah, Poker. Yeah, so I yeah, said, yeah. wow, you know, I made this deal. Yeah. It's amazing. I pu- I'm pulling it off. And uh, they agreed next morning, signing, and so on. So next morning, go to the lawyer's office. All the papers are spread out. So they updated all the papers. The lawyers are swarming around. And the, uh, the seller is not showing up. And I called the guy up. And uh, so I knew that only the CEO was going to come. He had a power attorney because the politician was traveling, apparently. And the CEO arrives 40 minutes late. And he says that basically, gentlemen, I'm, I'm ready to sign this deal on one condition. What? Uh, you have to raise, have to double my salary because I'm going to be part of this international group. And, and uh, you know, I haven't had a raise so many years. Da, 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 da. So time out, the, the buyer kind of uh, takes time, come back 10 minutes and says, okay, so this is a 51% acquisition and we are willing to pay for your salary, 51% of your salary uh, increase, uh, like, you know, like partners, and we are willing to go, uh, go through with this. And then the CEO says, no, 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 I, it's not acceptable. What? what do you mean? Well, my partner is not here. I cannot commit him to a deal in his absence. So you have to pay for the whole salary increase yourself. So at that point, they walked out. They said, no, this is bullshit. Not doing this. So I felt completely crushed. So however, on the high I was the night before, I was totally in the uh, basement, in the crawl space. And the whole weekend, I, I couldn't get over it. And I couldn't sleep. And Monday morning at 3 a.m. in the morning, I had an idea. Uh, I thought, wow, I mean, actually, our fee was going to be more than a million dollars here. And uh-huh. I could actually bridge the gap. So if I give up half my fee, I could pay for the 50% of the 50%. And, uh, and I could make this whole. So I called up the buyer. And they said, yeah, they would still do the deal. So, oh, fantastic. 
and I'm calling the seller, and they were driving in the this politician guy. He had the Maserati, and they were driving in the countryside. And he picked up the the phone, and he said, "Ah, Steve, what's going on?" And said, "Guys, I've got a solution." What is your solution? Well, I, I can I can make this thing happen for you. How can you make this? Well, uh, you know, you agreed. This is my fee, and I'm going to give it half of the up, and that will make uh, the CEO full, and you don't have to come in from your pocket for the next few years, and so good. And few few seconds silence, and then the politician starts to laugh. <laughs> so what are you laughing? Well, Steve, you didn't really seriously think that we were going to pay your fee. <laughs> so that's, and what happened was, so the, the uh, epilogue of this story was that, yes, next year was a pretty good year for them. But then the following year, there was a change in government and they, their friends uh, fell from grace. So they were not getting the, the public procurement projects anymore with their companies. The profit started to decline. And in 2011, four years later, they went into Chapter 11. Wow. And the two owners got indicted for, uh, for corruption. <laughs> and they almost went to jail. So suddenly there was another change of government and managed to escape, escape it, get out somehow on a technicality. But they almost went to jail and they never made the money. They would have made tens of millions of dollars Wow! Uh, because of their greed. Yeah, they're great. Exactly. Great and hubris. I mean, uh, what, what a great story to end on. Um, so I want to give you an opportunity. So you, you've mentioned, thank you. This has been great. You mentioned your, you've got a book, you mentioned a podcast. Uh, obviously, you've got your, your coaching business. Uh, give people some ways they can find various these uh, resources, uh, uh, you know, if they want to learn more. So, so the best way uh, to, to contact me is go to stevepreda.com. So that's where you can access my book, my podcast. I've got online tools to value your business and to figure out what you want to do with your life uh, through your business and all that stuff. And on Amazon, you can find Bible, uh, the book. Um, I'm coming up with a new book uh, also later this year. So you can let me know if you'd like to be an early reader. Um, and uh, the podcast is Management Blueprint. So that's also available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast. Fantastic, Steve. So my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means freedom from all people from oppression around the world to why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. Uh, so what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? That's such an interesting question. I'm going to respond kind of in real time. I haven't thought about it, but it somehow it, it came in. So I think freedom was for me for many years as well. But I would now say contribution. Mm. So the, the idea of contributing something, you know, to help other people with what you do, I think it's a huge thing. Um, most of my clients end up finding some version of, of that, that really their company stands for helping others, contributing, you know, making a change in the world. And I'm not a millennial, but I'm signing up for this. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And listen, that is definitely, I mean, for me, one of the things that freedom gives me is the ability to choose how and where I want, I want to contribute and be of service. Um, so you and I are definitely very much aligned on that. Um, Steve, thank you very much for being a phenomenal guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you, Corey. Great podcast. You're a great listener, great questions. Um, so I definitely uh, going to sign up uh, for this podcast and, and listen to the future for, to the future episodes as well. 
Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.